Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Lots of us have been homebound or reluctant to fly during the pandemic, but not this week's guest. The culture vultures who follow Artscoping will likely have a whetted appetite to board a plane after listening. I didn't pin our guest down too much about the environmental impact of tourism, although I wrote a piece for the art newspaper three years ago with the heretical title, Should We Relinquish Our Insistence on Privileging Original Works of Art? It was inspired by a museum director's conference about tourism and climate change held at the Vatican a few weeks earlier, where Christian Greco, the head of Turin's Egyptian Museum, said what was unthinkable a generation ago, we must not insist on the sacrality of the original. Mass tourism is without a doubt deleterious to heritage, monuments, and sites, and has distorted the thinking of many museums to believe that foot traffic is the primary indicator of success. Today we'll hear from a protagonist who shapes not mass tourism, but cultural travel for those discerning arts patrons who can afford to pay for privileged access to unforgettable experiences. And in the process, he explains how respectful American travelers can serve to foster better relations with nations abroad. You know, many of our travelers I see as ambassadors for the United States, because when we travel abroad, like two weeks ago I was on a sea cloud trip to Greece, our very first visit was with the U.S. ambassador to learn about what's going on between the United States and Greece and what are the issues we need to know about. That's Jim Friedlander, president of the Museum Travel Alliance and Arrangements Abroad, Inc. The Museum Travel Alliance, MTA, is a consortium of museums and cultural institutions offering exclusive travel opportunities led by renowned scholars and curators to UNESCO World Heritage Sites among countless other destinations internationally. At Arrangements Abroad, Jim oversees all aspects of the company's operations. His over 30 years of global business experience as an international banker and management consultant have been vital to Arrangement Abroad's growing diversity of clients and programs. A graduate of Phillips Exeter Academy, Wesleyan University, and Columbia Business School, Jim travels frequently to explore new cultural opportunities and serves on the Emeritus Council of the Educational Travel Conference and the U.S. Advisory Board of the Taj Hotel Group. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Max. I'm glad to have you. I'm also curious how you would summarize the cultural tourism industry since COVID-19 settled in for a long visit last year. Well, I would divide it into sort of two groups, international travel and domestic travel. And for the cultural world, international travel largely came to a halt in March of 2020. I think it will it has started to pick up uh, in September of this year. For the domestic travel, it started a little bit earlier, really kind of started to come back to life last May, June, and then Delta variant came along and it kind of went back into hibernation and now it's resurfaced also. So we've seen an increase both domestically and internationally in terms of travel in the United States and around the world. So your business your business is plural because you also support a lot of other organizations that travel through this extraordinary enterprise of the Museum Travel Alliance. What are you hearing from your clients, museums, libraries, other cultural organizations about how they're getting pickup from would-be travelers? Well, I can tell you that I've heard both from foreign diplomats as well as 
anyone who runs an institution in the United States, a cultural institution that depends on foreign visitors, that people are very excited about the reopening of the United States to foreign tourists coming here. Yeah, haven't we been charming to say, we can go where we want, but you can't come here? Yes, and it's been pointed out to me by quite a few uh, diplomats that there's a certain lack of parity there. It's next week that the regulations change is a source of great excitement. I know that a majority of the visitors to many museums, particularly in places like New York and Washington and Boston, are international visitors. And so this will have a huge positive impact, not just on museums, but also on theaters, on operas, on concert halls, on you know lots of cultural institutions. And institutions, particularly museums, used to fluff the big shows they were having in order to whet the appetites of potential travelers. These, of course, have slowed to a crawl. So as you seek to reach out to prospective voyagers, how do you incentivize them to get on a plane, get on a ship, get on a train, or whatever you might use as a conveyance? You know, after 9-11, it took about three months for travel to come back and be stronger than it was before. During World War II, people still traveled. After the flu pandemic in 1918, travel came back stronger than ever in the decade that followed. So I don't think travel is something that war, terrorism, or even a global pandemic is going to snuff out for very long. What about people, Zoom? Is Zoom going to snuff it out? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't around in World War II, Jim. No, I'm, I've spent the last year with many hours on Zoom, but it doesn't replace the person-to-person interactions. People want to connect with each other, not just on a screen, but in real life. And having been on a couple of trips, I can tell you the joy, I mean, to the point of tears uh, of some of our travelers who have said, wow, you know, we're just so happy to be with other people, to be, you know, not just eating dinner with the same person, much as I may love my husband or wife, you know, after a year and a half, you really want to be out and meet new people. You want to see new things. And this is an extraordinary time to do it when many museums, restaurants are much less crowded than you'll ever see it. You know, we just had a trip in Venice last week or a few weeks ago, actually, now, and the city was half empty, both because cruise ships, large cruise ships aren't allowed in, uh, into Venice and also- Thank uh, God, by the way, you surely don't like those massive floating 10-story hotels in the lagoon, do you? I'm not a big fan of massive cruise ships anywhere <laughs> they happen to be. Uh, yes, we only like small ships, and so yeah. that's all we use. The damage that the large ships cause is significant, uh, the environmental damage And there's another kind of damage, just the over-tourism aspect. Yeah, Yeah, because your trips, Jim, typically would not exceed how many voyagers? On a ship, it's always less than 100, even if the ship holds 150. And typically, our Sea Cloud trips are about 50. Our Sea Cloud 2 trips are about 80. You know, most of our riverboat trips are between 30 and 80. These are not inexpensive trips. Also, we should make our listeners aware if they're rushing to join your website. As you know, I've lectured on a few. And to me, it's the most extraordinary way of connecting with a foreign land. I snuck across this past summer to Italy and Switzerland and was amply rewarded. When do you think we're going to get back to something running normally as opposed to simply restarting? 
That's a great question. And the answer is, I don't know. Uh, and I'm a little scared to predict, but I will tell you that you know I've met with the presidents of several hotel chains and airlines and actually cruise lines in the last month, and everyone is saying the same thing. Forward reservations for 2022 are stronger than they have been for you know years. Hmm. So it's it's not that people don't want to travel; they really want to travel. The question is, will those journeys actually happen? So you're seeing higher reservation rates, but you're also seeing looser terms for travelers, and therefore you're seeing higher cancellation rates. Yeah. So if there's another wave or another variant, uh, you know, all of those expectations could crumble. One of the worlds that you've helped open up is Cuba. You've been on the front lines of that in American travel for a long time. What's the latest on that front? Cuba has been hard hit by COVID, and they've also had the double whammy of being at the effect of the decline in oil exports from Venezuela, as well as the Trump tightening of foreign remittances to Cubans by Cuban Americans. So the combined impact, oh, and of course, the decimation of their tourism industry by COVID. So the combined impact has been devastating on the country. You know, Cuba is a country that is in pain. However, like the United States, Cuba is actually opening up next week for tourism, non-essential travel into Cuba will again be permitted. In addition, the Cubans have always had a very good public health system. They've developed their own vaccine and they have committed to having 100% of their population vaccinated by the end of the year. One good thing about an authoritarian government is when they say everybody gets vaccinated, everybody gets vaccinated and you don't have religious or other exemptions. They probably will have some medical exemptions, but essentially travel to Cuba next year will be safe from a COVID standpoint. It'll take a while for them to restock their shelves. Uh, you know, People are actually hungry in Cuba right now, but you can travel to Cuba legally. I've been 56 times over the last 20 years. Many of the trips were under an exemption in the Treasury Department license called people-to-people trips to Cuba, and now it's support of the Cuban people. Tell us about how the change in administration from whatever that was that we went through to now an actual administration. How is the State Department working differently in respect to travel to Cuba? Uh, It is not, actually. There have been no positive changes. Ah. Uh, If anything, I would say it's, it's a little bit worse. And why is that? I think it's a domestic political issue because, you know, the current administration doesn't want to upset the, you know, Cuban Americans in Florida, even though a majority are for loosening travel restrictions. Yeah. Uh, but there are still enough hard, hard line first generation that they don't want to create another issue uh, in Florida. So it's more a domestic political issue. By encouraging the protests in Cuba, we we have given, and there have been some actual protests in Cuba for the first time since the revolution, that's encouraged the government to say, well, look, it's our great enemy to the north who's causing these problems again. And it's not jeopardizing, however, your point of access. You still have a means to get people in as visitors. We do. And it's actually harder perhaps now for individuals to travel on their own to Cuba. 
There's a long list of prohibited hotels. It's more difficult now than it was in the past. First time I went was through Mexico. Is that still a way that Americans get into Cuba? It is a way because there are flights, but you don't need to go to Mexico. There are also flights from from New York. JetBlue out of New York. There's United out of Newark. There's American out of Miami. There's no reason that you have to go through Mexico to do that. I was there many moons ago. Let's go a little further afield. Your travels this fall include, looking at your website, the UK, Italy, Tunisia, Egypt, the UAE, Korea, Japan, Singapore, elsewhere. So there are all these shifting alliances, and we've just heard from you a bit about how the Biden administration doesn't necessarily represent a sea change from the Trump administration about travel restrictions. But you're, as much as you mentioned at the outset, a diplomat as a shepherd of affluent culture enthusiasts. How would you describe geopolitics intersecting with your company's planning? You know, many of our travelers I see as ambassadors for the United States, because when we travel abroad, like two weeks ago, I was on a sea cloud trip to Greece. Our very first visit was with the U.S. ambassador to learn about what's going on between the United States and Greece and what are the issues we need to know about. And then we met with the you know, director of the Acropolis Museum and had dinner. But the first visit was with the ambassador. And you know, I think there is an opportunity for Americans to show the best of America to the rest of the world. People who are there who are interested in art, architecture, cultural events, performing arts, and that's great. And so I'm really proud of that. Politics, however, sometimes does interfere. We've had some trips to China that were canceled because some of the members of the group were not allowed in by the government. So the trip was canceled. We've had trips to Russia where we've had the same thing, where we've just been told, no, you can't take certain people. And so in those events, you know, sometimes we'll just cancel the whole trip. We don't like other governments to tell us individuals can't go. On the other hand, we've been to lots of places that people have previously thought you couldn't go to, Cuba being one. You know, we've taken about 10,000 Americans there over the last 20 years. We've done lots of trips to Iran and to other places that people would say, oh, those are access of evil countries. You know, <laughs> how could you go? Well, the answer is when you go and you bring groups of distinguished, culturally sophisticated Americans, you're not going to ha- talk politics. You're going to learn about each other's culture. And we are proud to be and to bring Americans to other countries as ambassadors, in essence. We're not a political delegation, but when you meet with museum directors and opinion leaders in other countries, that's how you build bridges, you reduce tension, you have a better world. That's why it's great that you serve the one-tenth of the one percent in traveling, and then the rest of America that gets on those big cruise ships don't necessarily have the same impact when they visit a land, and they don't go to Iran, I'm sure, those bigger cruise companies and such. Tell us about Iran. What's it like for one of your groups to get there and what kind of experiences do they have? Iran is a fascinating country. The art is wonderful. Going to places like Persepolis surpassed my expectations. My wife and I were on the first chartered train into Iran since the revolution, Mm -hmm. which was a wonderful experience. We were warmly greeted everywhere we went. You know, you get traditional Persian hospitality, and that's a wonderful thing. I would say it's a friendly country to visit. It's got great art and architecture. The gardens 
while they're different than the gardens you would find in, in France or in England, are really interesting. There's a great history of poetry and culture. So I think it's a wonderful destination to visit. And again, there are not so many tourists there, certainly not very many American tourists. It is not a place to venture into on your own. You want to have the right guide with the right connections. And you have to be very respectful, as always, of the country you're visiting and their requirements. That's very much at the heart of it, that you, in your efforts to bring travelers to a foreign land, you're also an ambassador back to this country about practices, habits, traditions, and the like. Which brings me to the most important question. Have you ever watched the show Below Deck Med? <laughs> I, can I, should I admit that publicly yes, that I've ever seen yes. a, a, a sample? Yes, yeah, but yeah. it has nothing to do with our trips, I assure you. Our Aegean cruise looks nothing like their trips. <laughs> right, but it's, it's a guilty pleasure. And it's fascinating to imagine what happens below deck when you have all of these elegant experiences. But I know you're also very careful about that. What would you say, though, if there was a film made on one of your trips, what are some of the highlights that you've had you could recall in the last couple of years, even before COVID? Wow. So many, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. I would say just on this last trip, and this is all you know, two weeks ago, meeting with the ambassador, meeting with the director of the Acropolis Museum, we go down, get on the ship after we do all of our testing and paperwork. And we essentially sailed from Athens all the way to Crete without ever turning on the engines. So mm -hmm. this is an ecologically perfect way to travel. We're using wind power. Yeah. Uh, and of course, it's very smooth when you're on a tall ship because the sails act like giant stabilizers. Uh, so you have an exceptionally smooth ride and you have a, a long night under sail. And being able to be on a tall ship just sailing is, I think, a real treat. The captain was an expert sailor, and he sailed off the anchor one day, which is wonderful. And then for the first time in 30 years, the ship actually tacked going upwind. So if you, you can imagine tacking on a little, you know, on a sunfish or something, or even on a racing yacht, but a tall ship does not tack very often. For the first time in 30 years, he did it. And so that was a great experience. So the the thought of just being on a ship that's 90 years old and it was owned by Marjorie Merriweather Post was great. I've had the privilege of sailing with family members like Dina Merrill, and that's also fun to hear stories of their childhood and what it was like to sail with Marjorie and meet the King and Queen yeah. of England and some of the various personalities that have been on board. Wasn't that ship seconded for different purposes over the years? It was. It was in the U.S. Navy uh, for a while as a weather observation ship uh, around D-Day. It was also uh, owned by a dictator called Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. The life of the sea cloud is an amazing story unto itself. Jim, you mentioned the impact of sailing versus using fuel. It's been reported that air traffic represents less than 2 to 3% of global CO2 emissions. But it's, of course, still the subject of great debate. We touched on Zoom meetings having replaced business travel to an amazing extent. And corporate culture has been reassessing business travel with both the environment and cost savings. So in leisure travel, such as the world that you operate and inhabit, how do you square the obvious benefits of what you've described of person-to-person -person encounters with the demerits associated with carbon consumption? Well, I think it's a question of balancing and being thoughtful. 
sticking with the C-Cloud example, there are ways you can reduce fuel consumption by using sailing as a mode of transportation. In order to do that, you have to schedule the ship so you're not so tightly scheduled. Mm-hmm. If you schedule it like a motorized ship, you have to burn more fuel. If you go at a lower speed rather than a high speed, you burn much less fuel. But what else is SeaCloud doing? They're switching from using bunker fuel, which is more like home heating oil, to using gas oil, which is a higher octane and much less polluting fuel. So it cuts their emissions of sulfur by about 95%. It is much cleaner. It's still using fuel, but it's a much cleaner form. They're also reducing the use of plastic bottles. It used to be that everybody got a water bottle and made a plastic every day when they left the ship. Now they have water bottles and pouches and you can refill them. So there are things that you can do both little, like the water bottles, and big, like changing the kind of fuel, that really make a difference in your carbon emissions. With respect to planes, lots of the new planes are point-to-point. We're seeing more point-to-point without having to do as many connections. We typically try and schedule arrivals and departures from trips through major hubs to reduce the number of connections people have to take. And that in turn lowers carbon footprint. So there are ways that you can reduce the carbon usage and planes are, by the way, the biggest single usage of carbon on all of our trips. But those are offset by things like using buses or vans in places that you go instead of individual cars, which significantly reduces the amount of carbon per person. There was a conference a couple of years ago of museum directors, and it was heretically suggested that seeing original works of art is what's driving mass tourism. Are you feeling any pushback from the Voyager class that you work with in respect to the environment? And are they demanding different things of your company and of you? I think we're actually doing more things than than we ever talk about. We don't talk about the things that we are doing or our clients doing. I know there are companies that make a big deal about it and do very little. And our goal has always been to do talk very little and do a lot in terms of sustainability and reducing carbon footprint. I haven't honestly seen a lot of people who have said, yes, we want to do carbon offsets, for instance, and we're willing to pay for them. That's really a very small percentage of the, of the traveling public right now that actually participate in that. I don't think as responsible members of the hospitality world, you can be, or actually just the world, you can be ignorant of the effect that using carbon has on climate change. I would never say I'm never going to travel because every time I travel, I'm going to use carbon. That's not the right answer. The right answer is, how do I do it and do it in the most sustainable way possible? Jim, what are some of the hardest sells as destinations to prospective travelers? For example, the stands in in Central Asia. Where do you find it hardest to set up a trip that has a successful sign-up? Well, that's an interesting. Uh, the the stands are one that's a challenge because there are very varied hotels around. <laughs> yes. uh, so, you know, in one city you might have a nice, you know, beautiful hotel, and the next you're in a, a little tiny hotel with very different standards. One of the ways we get around that is to use a private train. Uh, so we use the Golden Eagle because in all of the former communist countries in the, of the Soviet Union, they use wide gauge track. So the uh, Trans-Siberian Express, the Golden Eagle Trans-Siberian, can operate in other countries as well. 
So we tend to use a five-star train in places like the stands. Uh, so you can have the comfort of your hotel come along with you. You can have fine wine and you can have, uh, you know. <laughs> so you don't have to drink. Shower. You don't have to drink horse milk in Kazakhstan. Can no. How does it work with these trains? Do they pull off track? You stable the trains, like yes. you would stable a horse. And, right. and so you pull off onto a siding somewhere. Yeah. And sometimes the sidings are not very pretty. And sometimes they're in absolutely spectacular places with views you can't get any other way. And impromptu picnics or anything like that when you have such a situation? You're so carefully scheduled with these trips. There's nothing impromptu. <laughs> well, it may appear impromptu. <laughs> right. It may uh, but, appear impromptu. Like having dinner with a Marquesa who turns out to be someone that actually is enjoying a little bakshish from your company. Yes, that's that's been known to happen as well. <laughs> and so, But it's fun. And, and yes, we do do sometimes off-train events or off-ship events, and uh, it just adds to the, to the joy and the serendipity of travel for people because you never know what's going to happen. Correct. I was once on a trip to back to Venice with one of the museum members of a museum I won't mention, and she seemed to think that one of the staff on the trip had broken into her luggage. So you're also dealing with people who have unpredictable expectations about travel. <laughs> Yes. Well, one of the uh, one of the things is that if you have a group of you know twenty people or fifteen people, no trip, no trip in a group format can be a hundred percent right for all fifteen at the same time. So some people are going to want to spend more time, and some people are going to want to spend less time at every single place you go. So you try and get as many people as happy as you can, and then be flexible with those who say, I don't want to go here. You just say, okay, well, don't go and come meet us at the next place. Right. Jim, is there a destination in the offing that you haven't yet set up a trip for, you've always wanted to, and you're going to try to make happen? There is, actually. We have uh, been trying to do trips uh, with the Japanese railroad for years. And they have never chartered one of their six-star trains to any American company. And we finally got permission to do one this past year. Of course, it was canceled because of COVID and you couldn't get into Japan. But we are doing it next year. Uh, it's a train called the Shikishima, which is an incredible train. I mean, if you Google it and look at the pictures, you'll say, wow, I never saw a train that looks like that. So spell it for our listeners if you can. It's S-H-I-K-I. Dash S H I M A, and it's one of three ultra deluxe trains in Japan, and this one goes to the north. There's one that sort of in the middle, one that goes to the south, and this is the one that goes to the north. And you know, no American company's ever charted it before, and we're happy to say we're the first. So we like to be innovative and go to places that other people don't go. Jim, it's a vicarious pleasure, this conversation. I'm sure for everyone, myself included, just to imagine what types of experiences you've had, your planning awaits you. Thanks for giving us a little insight into this extremely wonderful world that you inhabit. I appreciate your asking me for a few minutes of my time, Max. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Jim Friedlander, president of the Museum Travel Alliance and Arrangements Abroad, Inc. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.